from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about we are sending a helicopter to Mars, and you are going to enjoy it. And of course, taking listener questions about all things in this amazing universe, because that's exactly what this show is about. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, and you can follow along online by leaving a voicemail or by going to spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about no thine heirs, but first the news. Hey space cadets, welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at the Flatiron Institute and the Stony Brook University. I almost said the Ohio State University. It's been a while. It's been a while, but still you want to put that article in there. And for the next half hour, I'm your agent of the stars. We've got an amazing show for you today where we talk about all the amazing things in our universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern here at Spaceman Studios in New York City. So leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get your voice on the air. You can also follow along live with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including, uh, but not limited to, Shorewood, Illinois, London, UK, Warsaw, Poland, Woodlands, Texas, Washington, D.C., Redmond, Washington, Westfield, New Jersey, Sheboygan, Michigan, Flagstaff, Arizona, Halifax, England, and Christchurch, New England, and anyone else. Oakland, California, and Howell, New Jersey, and Austin, Texas, and Lithuania coming in at the last second. Whew. What a wonderful audience of space cadets. Really, they're here for the cheese, and I don't blame them, but I will take questions that you send there. Uh, seriously, folks, I've only prepped 10 minutes of show material tops, so get those questions in. Before I start taking questions, I did want to talk about a little bit of news that caught my eye today, and how could a rocket launch not catch my eye? Today at 9.50 a.m. Eastern off of Cape Canaveral, then Mars 2020 launched. What good timing, man. If that was going to be delayed, if we were going to miss our launch window and it got pushed back to like 2021, what an awkward name. So I'm glad they got it off the ground. The Mars 2020 mission, let me break it down for you, has, has two components. One is another rover called Perseverance. Perseverance is a lot like Curiosity, which was launched like I don't know, 15 years ago, and it's basically the same thing. Yeah, there's some new science, is, and but it has very similar mission goals. I, I have a complicated relationship when it comes to Mars probes. I feel like I feel like we do it too much. I feel like there are other planets worth exploring. I feel like the whole, I've always felt like the whole Mars 2020 mission has been more of a retread and like we spent a bajillion $11 to do it and yes there'll be cool science yes it's worthwhile yes but i feel like that money could have been spent elsewhere i'm i'm i wish what i want is another mission to the ice giant planets in my lifetime that's what i want i want uranus and neptune explored with an orbiter the whole deal in my lifetime and if we just keep sending like mars 2020 mars 2030 mars 2040 that's not going to happen because there is, isn't any money left but one cool thing about this mission is a technology demonstration there's a little helicopter 
uh, attached to the rover. And once the rover gets out and, you know, flexes its wheels and, and does all its thing, uh, they're going to do some test flights of this little helicopter called Ingenuity. Now, it's a drone craft, so it will automatically, it will detach and it will fly a certain predetermined pattern and then come back. Uh, flying on Mars is hard because the air pressure is only 1%, that of Earth. And so if you want an air craft something that uses the air and pushes off the air you've got to work a lot harder on the other hand the gravity on mars is only like what 60 percent 40 percent that of the earth uh like around half that of the earth so it's easier to get things up in the air ultimately this this helicopter is big the blades of the helicopter itself are very very wide to help it get off the ground it's only going to send like 30 to 60 seconds in the air at the time, I think like just a few minutes and we're only going to do it like half a dozen times. It's more of a technology demonstration to see if, you know, we can actually get aircraft powered on other worlds. If this is actually useful, if this is actually handy, it will be doing a few things. It will be scouting ahead for the rover, providing some information like, ooh, maybe that's a really great looking rock. Let's go check out that. I'm sorry. I make fun of Mars missions sometimes. Um, but it, it will give you some handy destinations and then maybe future Mars missions, these helicopters, these drones are going to be a regular staple. So technology demonstration, don't expect a lot out of it. Don't be surprised if it fails, but if it works, it will be the first powered flight on another world, but we are going to have to wait because Mars 2020 isn't going to reach Mars for another nine months. So like see you next year. That's the latest and greatest when it comes to space. It's time to have a conversation. We've got some voicemails ready to go. Hey, Greg. Hey, Greg, wake up. Hey, dude, uh, could you hit that button so we could do the question? You know, no, not that button. That's the button that cuts my mic. I know you, Greg, just quit playing around. Hello, Dr. Sutter. Tom Bach here calling today from Redmond, Washington. My question today is about spectroscopy. And as we look at other stars within our galaxy, all of which presumably have their own Oort cloud-like material surrounding them in a huge dome uh, around the star, how do we perform spectroscopy knowing that the light from the star actually has to then pass through that Oort cloud-like material before it reaches us? Does it cause us to have to reevaluate how we do spectroscopy because we know the light's passing through ice and a bunch of other things that surround the star? I'm just curious how we account for Oort cloud-like materials around stars as we do spectroscopy. Thank you very much. This is a super cool question, Tom, and I'm glad you asked it because it gets into the guts of what astronomy is really like and the realities of astronomy. <laughs> you named perhaps the number one nemesis for all astronomical observations, and that is dust. Dust is a four-letter word to an astronomer. It's also literally a four-letter word, but it also has some extra connotations for astronomers. Unless you're an astronomer interested in dust, in which case every observation ever in the history of astronomy is really an observation of dust. We're not so much worried about the Oort cloud. The Oort cloud, even though its name says cloud, I don't want you to think of it as a cloud. It is 
a cluster, a layer, I would say, of comets. Like if you go out to a certain region, you're going to start finding comets out there. The Oort cloud is a great reservoir of comets for a solar system. It's, it's the leftover bits from the formation of a solar system, but it's still clumped together. But your general point is still valid. When we look at a distant star, we don't just see the naked star as it is, as if it were right up against our own atmosphere. We're looking through light years and light years and light years of dust. And sometimes that dust is thicker. Sometimes that dust is thicker and also thinner. <laughs> it's thicker and it's also it's sometimes thicker. Sometimes it's thinner. It's everywhere we look. Every single observation we make in astronomy is contaminated, at least to some degree, by dust. And what dust does is change the light. There's some light that, say, comes off of a star, and that light has to pass through the dust in order to get to the Earth, and so it will change. Some frequencies will be absorbed. Some frequencies will be emitted. Some of the colors will be shifted. Some wavelengths will get scattered. Some will pass right through. So at the end of the day, all astronomy, you have to get rid of the dust from your observations. And we account for the dust in many, many ways. We, we work to try to map and understand the dust itself. One way to do that is to look in a direction where there's obviously a lot of dust, like a dark nebula. There's a lot of dust happening. And if we look at that and try to look at stars through that, we can get an understanding of how dust works. Another way to do it is to look at stars at different distances that are otherwise the same, like the same age, the same type, and look at their different distances and see how the light we actually end up with at our telescopes is changed. That can give us a measure of the amount of dust between us and these stars and how the dust affects the light. And we can understand the dust physically. We can build models of how the dust changes the light. Uh, we can pay attention again to different sources. We can know, we can figure out how dust affects the light. So at the end of the day, we subtract it. Is this a perfect process? Absolutely not. This process of removing dust from astronomical observations or removing the effects of dust does introduce some uncertainty, does introduce some modeling, but we do our best to account for that. So when we say like this star has an age, there's a little uncertainty attached to that age. And it's be one of the reasons that it's uncertain is because the amount of dust between us and that object. But in general, astronomers have been doing this for a few hundred years, so we gotta give them a lot of credit. They're pretty good at building maps of dust and understanding the nature of dust and really getting this whole dust thing down. But really, our universe is a very gross, very disgusting, very untidy mess of a place with dust everywhere, and it really should pick up its room. Anyway, that was an amazing question. Thank you so much for asking. I hope I was able to help. You can join the conversation by going to spaceradioshow.com to leave a voicemail or by watching with the Space Success live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter. This is Space Radio. Please, if you're interested in supporting this show, please go to patreon.com slash pmsutter. That's where you can directly contribute to keep this show on the air and keep buying me cheese, which is very, very important. That's patreon.com slash pmsutter, and I'll see you after the break. 
Support for Space Radio on 90.5 WCBE comes from Thompson Hine, a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work. Predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got more questions ready to go, but remember, you can join the conversation by leaving an online voicemail or by following the live streams. You can do both by going to spaceradioshow.com and checking out all those juicy links. Now, here are some awesome questions from the Space Cadets. Ready to go. I'm going to do a little marathon here. Uh, we, yes, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to do it because the faster I do this, the sooner I get to cheese. Yes, on the live streams at the end of every episode, I have a cheese tasting because why not? I get a random cheese every week and we all enjoy it together. And by all of us enjoying it together, I mean me enjoying it by myself with you watching. If that sounds like something you're interested in, go to spaceradioshow.com so you can catch the live stream. Anyway, let's go. Guy on YouTube is asking, why is the atom an apparent perpetual motion machine? Okay, so yeah, you, you have this image of the atom with the nucleus and the electron buzzing around it. Stop thinking of that. That was a pregnant pause. That was a very clear and directed pregnant pause because I really want to emphasize that point. Stop thinking of that. Do not think of electrons in orbit around their nucleus like planets in orbit around the sun. Just stop. That is not the view we have of atoms from quantum mechanics. The view we have of atoms from quantum mechanics is a nucleus at the center with the electrons surrounding them. Like the electrons just exist in states near the nuclei. There's some more quantum mechanical fuzziness that goes into that that I won't get into, but just know that an atom is a nucleus surrounded by electrons. They are not in motion. They are not moving. They are not whizzing around. They are not orbiting. So there's no motion involved when it comes to electrons around nuclei. Moving on, Larry Gaskamp on YouTube. If a small black hole comes in contact with a supermassive object, what happens? If that supermassive object is another black hole, the small black hole just gets slurped up like no big deal. If the small black hole comes in contact with, say, like a star or a planet, it will steadily eat away at the star of the planet, and it is very gross, and you do not want to be anywhere near it. Edward Hinton on YouTube, if finding life is so important and Mars is our best hope of finding it, why has it taken over 40 years since Viking for NASA to send life testing probes and rovers to Mars? Great question. Every single mission we've sent to Mars has been a, a life hunting mission. Now, the Viking landers did contain some, some ways of, of rudimentary ways of testing for life, but it turns out those are a sensitive to a lot of chemical things that are happening on the Martian surface that don't happen on the earth. And two, it's hard to make it a clean test where what you see is what you want to see, which is evidence for life on Mars and not just some, some contamination from the earth. 
But every probe that we send to Mars is in some way hunting for life. We're looking for the biochemical signatures. We're looking for the leftovers of light. We're even looking for potential like fossil remnants. Trust me, every probe up to and including Perseverance is hunting for life. Infinite Monkey on YouTube is asking, can a planetary nebula form stars? Planetary nebula is what happens when a star dies. At the end of its life, a star like our sun will eject its outermost layers and create a very beautiful and very pretty planetary nebula, which is just a cloud of gas and dust. Now, the planetary nebula itself is unlikely to recoalesce and recollapse because it's been ejected from its star and it's not coming back anytime soon. It's been kicked out of the house. But parts of that nebula will intermix and intermingle with the general interstellar medium, with other nebulae, and then those will go on to recollapse and form their own stars. So those bits and pieces in the planetary nebula will find their way out and into stars and into solar systems eventually but it may take a while. Uh, Tom Bach on YouTube, where do we believe the majority of ultra-energy cosmic rays come from? I did a podcast on Ask a Spaceman episode about this, ultra-high-energy cosmic rays, U-H-E-C-Rs, also known as U-Heckers. No one calls them that except for me, and that's okay. Ultra high energy cosmic rays, these are tiny little particles that are accelerated to like 99.9999999999999 a few more nines percent the speed of light. We haven't seen many. We see like one a year in our observatory and in our observatories across the earth. And we don't really know what causes them. The best explanation, you need something energetic like an active galactic nucleus, like a quasar, but all the quasars are too far away to make these kinds of ultra high energy cosmic rays. So we actually don't know. It's a mystery in physics. Moving on, Murray Hayes on YouTube is asking, is it possible that there are still Neanderthals living on Earth inside some super deep cave? I sure hope not because uh, that would be pretty miserable for them because they would have no food, no light, uh, no access to resources, and I don't think they'd be having any fun. I think we either managed to kill and or meet with all of the Neanderthals tens of thousands of years ago. Rick W. on YouTube is asking, I've heard rumors this week concerning a potential large asteroid discovered headed towards us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Asteroids are always headed towards us, but it's like... It doesn't count unless it hits, folks, okay? Space is big. And yes, an asteroid could be headed towards us. And yes, I'm putting that in air quotes. If it's kind of sort of heading in the general vicinity of maybe our Earth, all right, it's not going to hit us. It's not going to hit us. It's not even going to come close. Try again, Mother Nature. You can't hit us. I know you, you got the dinosaurs, but you won't get us. Nancy Graziano is asking, Ingenuity, this is the little helicopter that we're sending to Mars. Will its test flights be used as a proof of concept for a future copter going to Enceladus or Europa? A great question, Nancy. 
So Europa and Enceladus, these are ice-covered moons of the gas giants Jupiter and Saturn. And underneath their icy shells, there are oceans of liquid water, which might be potential homes for life. Better potential homes for life than Mars, if you ask me, and you should. But we're not going to send copters there because those worlds don't have any appreciable atmosphere. And so an air-powered craft is not going to work on Europa or Enceladus. Instead, what we need are some submarines, and there's some super cool concepts floating around out there. It's time for the Blue Shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio, and this is the Blue Shift, my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I don't know about you, I, when it comes to coronavirus and COVID and the discussion of what's happening in the fall with schools and the recent explosions in the South and West, there used to be a lot of talk in, I remember in April, May, about models and projections and like scientists predict 200,000 dead by August 11th and a revised model update, scientists predict 250,000 dead, you know, like that's my impersonation of a newscaster. I don't don't watch the news much, but to, in my head, that's what they sound like. The models, and, and there doesn't just doesn't seem to be a lot of talk recently about model projections, about what we expect to happen over the next few weeks, the next few months. Models, when you're making projections on the future, there are two kinds of uncertainty that you need to pay attention to. And usually I only see discussions about one. The two kinds of uncertainties that you need to pay attention to are your statistical uncertainties and your systematic uncertainties. The statistical uncertainties are based on the limited amount of data you have. Like you have a model of how, say, disease is spread. We have the history of the progression of the disease in certain communities around the world. And that's only a limited data set. You only have so many data points. You only have so much information for your model. So when you make projections for the future, there's going to be uncertainty on that model. And if you had more data, those uncertainties would come down because you'd be able to better match your model to the existing data. And that's what I see on all the models. You see these error margins of error, these uncertainties. The other kind of uncertainty is called systematic uncertainty. And that is the uncertainty due to the fact that your model is not an accurate representation of reality, that you might be missing something, that your model could have a fundamental flaw or miss some aspect or overemphasize an aspect or have some parameter that's tuned incorrectly. That comes from the fact that you're just not matching reality. Like there's something in your model that you don't know if it's correct or not. This introduces its own form of uncertainty called systematic uncertainty. Measuring the systematic uncertainty is much, much more difficult than measuring the statistical uncertainty because the statistical uncertainty just comes from math. But the systematic uncertainty, the source of that comes from just not having an accurate model of reality. So keep in mind, for all model projections, for all future forecasts, for all uncertainties, things can and will change because the models do not accurately capture reality and likely that their reported uncertainties and margins of error do not account for that because it's just really hard. And unfortunately, 
This broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Please go to patreon.com slash pmsutter to learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing, Nancy Graziano for angling the space cadets, and all the fine crew at WCBE Radio 90.5 FM in Columbus for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for all those links. You can also follow me on all social channels. That's at Paul Matt Sutter. And of course, thanks again, Space Cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing and transmission.